obligated coming here and, and doing that. But a couple of announcements before I dive into the message. And uh, let me just hit these. Actually, why don't you open up to Matthew chapter 7 in your Bible. If you want to grab a pew Bible, you can do that. It's on page 685 uh, if you want to get there. While you're turning there, a couple of things I just want to let you know about. Alpha, which we've been talking about for the past several weeks. That's kicking off this week. And uh, if you still uh, want to sign up for that, you still can. I want to let you know about that. Um, also, coming up on February 25th is our first uh, women's event of the year. And uh, our, some of our women's ministry stuff, it's been really great lately. And just some of the events they've been doing, connecting people, building community. So that's February 25th, just two weeks away. And um, which I can't believe February 25th is two weeks away. Is this year flying or what? March 18th is just around the corner too, by the way. Some of you know the significance of that one. But does anybody know? Lose your masks on March 18th. I think that's the celebration day. So... Um, <laughs> But ladies, if you want to come to that, there is childcare available. And so if you want to do that, sign up on our website. That helps us accommodate you for that. So please sign up for that event if you want um, to bring your kiddos with you. And then um, the final thing I just want to mention is this. If you have a baby and you want that child or, or maybe small kid to be dedicated next Sunday at nine, we have one of our dedication classes. And so if that's been on your radar and you haven't done it yet, um, you can sign up for that on our website also. And just want to let you know about that. So um, as, as we're kind of diving into Matthew 7 this morning, I want to deal with a misconception. Uh, because I think we get misconceptions a lot in the church and around the Bible. There are things that we believe to be true, or we have ideas, and they're not, they're not always accurate. And, and there's a misconception around Jesus. In fact, I think sometimes when we, um, if somebody were to say, like, close your eyes and imagine Jesus, right? And you, like, get a picture of him, and then said, okay, now put it into words, like, whatever that picture is, whatever Jesus is. I think a lot of times we, we come up with words like meek and mild, we come up with words like gentle. We come up with words like, um, like, you know, like kind of like soft, like Jesus is non-confrontational. And, and I'm not saying that he's not those things, but oftentimes that's our preconceived idea that Jesus is just really just soft and gentle and non-confrontational. And so I want to clear the air for a moment because if you look at a good number of Jesus's encounters with people, and that's what we're doing. We're in this series called Humankind. We're looking at Jesus talking with, touching, healing people. When you look at these encounters with Jesus, what you begin to discover pretty quickly is that Jesus actually was very confrontational. Jesus actually confronted people and challenged people and did things in ways that tried to get them to see who he really is and what's really going on in, in the world. In fact, um, a, a lot of times we look at Jesus' stories and we sort of think like Jesus was doing what we would do. Like, you know, like we say something and then Jesus just wants to soften the blow a little bit and maybe tell a cute little story and we kind of like crawl up in his lap and he reads us a bedtime story and we kind of wrap up with that. But the reality is when Jesus was telling stories, more often than not, he was driving a point home. Like, Jesus would teach, and then he'd go, I don't think you guys are getting it, so let me tell you this story so that you really understand what we're talking about. And, and I say all of that because um, we see that in the text we're looking at today. Jesus, sometimes the point was sharp. Sometimes Jesus, uh, the things he said were hard to hear. I mean, there's this one story. There's this one moment in Jesus's life when he gets done preaching and everybody walks away because the things he said were so difficult to receive, he literally turns to his disciples and he goes, are you guys going to leave me too? Like we, I think sometimes we forget that Jesus. We forget that sometimes Jesus did stuff that made people not want to listen to him. 
But it's really interesting because the text we're looking at today, Jesus says some hard things. I want to jump, jump to the end of this. We're going to read the 13 to 29 in Matthew 7. But if, if you look towards the end of this, in Matthew 28, Jesus is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. This massive, massive sermon. Beautiful. The way of Jesus just being unpacked and, and explained. And then we get to the end of this. And it says in verse 28, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus gets done and people are, they're just, they're shocked. Like they're listening. They're like, this is amazing. This is astonishing. This is beautiful. This is groundbreaking. Like all of those kinds of words are the words that are racing through their mind. But the question is why? Why were they actually astonished? And if you read on to verse 29, it says, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes or not as their teachers. So there's a difference. This is what we're saying. There's a difference between Jesus and all of the other teachers that they had heard previously. Like Jesus starts teaching. They're like, we've never heard anybody like this. This guy talks in ways and says things that we have never heard before. And so the question is, what was Jesus doing or what was Jesus saying that was actually different? Because the context is the same. We've got the same group of people. Jesus is preaching from the same scriptures, right? He's a trained rabbi just like them. And so why? Why is Jesus so distinct? And why is he so different? And, and was it because he said some difficult things? Or was it because uh, he made some remarkable claims? Or, or, or was it that he actually was saying the opposite of what all of their scribes and all of their teachers were saying. Could it be that when Jesus spoke, he said stuff that was so different they couldn't help but be astonished? So I just wanna, I wanna kinda say this for a moment. It's worth noting that, that if you ever hear the teaching of Jesus and, you're, and you kinda shrug your shoulders and go, well, that was good. Yeah, that was good. That was helpful. You're probably missing something, right? If you ever just like listen to Jesus or like you hear a Bible story or something, you're like, oh man, that's a good story and you're just, eh, whatever. You're not getting it, right? That's like, because when Jesus talks, he astonishes people. There's something about this teaching that if you rightly understand it, it should be astounding. It should be astonishing. It should be scandalous. It should be turning things around inside of your heart. That's the way it should be, which really kind of leads to an irony with these two verses we read in Matthew, because right before these two verses, Jesus has just given a parable that if you've been around church for a little while, anyone been around church for a little while? You've been around here a minute, right? If you've been around church, you grew up in Sunday school, he tells a story that's really familiar. He tells a story about these two guys who both build houses. One of them builds a house on sand. One of them builds a house on rock. And then there's a storm that comes. But when the storm's over, storm's over, the house built on the sand is gone. The house built on the stone is still standing. Jesus tells this story, right? And then he gets done with this story and he says, this guy who built his house on the rock is like anyone who hears these words of mine, who listens to what I'm saying and, and does them, lives them out. So this, this is the story that Jesus tells right before the crowd says, we're astonished by him, right? And the problem for me in this is, is, that, is that I don't typically find that story that astonishing. And maybe part of that's my problem and what I've heard all my life about this story. Um, and maybe it's part of the problem of what people have taught us, or maybe it's just the way we come at this. But it, it, it seems to be like what I've always heard about this or what I've always read when I see this story is that Jesus is essentially saying this, you better listen to me. You better listen. Because if you don't listen, there's going to be storms and your life is going to fall apart. Like he's threatening us. 
That's the way we kind of read this, right? I mean, if you dig down to the, to the depths of it, it's like, if, if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, your life is gonna be in a shambles. So be obedient. That's the way we read this. But there's a couple of problems with this. First of all, how is that any different than the religiosity that the scribes of the day were teaching to these people that are now astonished by Jesus? It isn't. Everybody taught religion, and religion is what that sounds like, right? Religion is any system where we are obeying a set of rules to try to please God and earn his favor. Religion, at its core, is that sort of system. It's bent towards us performing to get God to be happy with us. And so why would that have been astonishing? Why would, if Jesus was just preaching religion, why would anybody have been like, oh man, this is like something we've never heard before? No, it's exactly what they've been hearing. They've been hearing religion over and over and over again. Not, not only that, but secondly, if that's what Jesus is saying, if that's what he's talking about, we, it's different from everything else we see him communicating. We know Jesus was not establishing another religion. He was not creating another spiritual program for us to follow. Jesus is establishing an entirely new way for us to relate to God. If anything, Jesus is eradicating religion. So why in the world would he say something that sounds so utterly religious? Why, and why would that astonish these people? So, so maybe, I mean, maybe when you start thinking about this, maybe the story isn't what we think it is, right? Maybe Jesus said some more things that help us understand what's happening here. Maybe, maybe this is astonishing because it's more complicated than just, you better be good, you better, like, you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not, I mean, like we treat Jesus like Santa Claus, right? Maybe Jesus was actually saying something way more shocking and way more scandalous than just this little cute story about guys that built houses in the sand and on the stone. So one of the principles that we always have is we always look at the context in which Jesus is speaking. Like Jesus never, um, Jesus never walked up and just told some crazy story and then walked away. You notice this? Like Jesus doesn't ever just walk up and go, here's a really weird story. And then he shares it and then just like leaves people to figure it out. Jesus teaches and then he tells a story. So the question we have to ask is, well, the, if the story comes about these two guys building houses, what did Jesus teach right before this? That's where we begin to understand what's really happening here. So if you go back to verse 13, there's this long section of teaching that integrates into the story of the two builders of these two different houses, and it'll help make sense of this. But I just want to read this with you first. Verse 13, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And he goes on, verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Then he goes on. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, by, guys, this is Jesus. He says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be, and here's the story, will be like a man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and bent on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. This is way heavier than we think, isn't it? This little two guys building a house is more than just, you better do what I tell you to do, right? This is astonishing. And so, so it begins with Jesus saying there's two roads, right? There's these two, there's a narrow road and there's a wide road. And he talks about entering those roads. And he says, enter the narrow gate for wide is the gate and easy is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. And then he talks about false teachers, that there's gonna be people who come along and they're gonna teach things and they're gonna sound good. It's gonna sound right. But look at the fruit. What's on the other side of it? Is it any good? Don't trust them, right? And then he moves to one of the most frightening things we ever hear come out of the mouth of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus says, there are people who think they're in. There are people who think they're my disciples. There are people who think they're a part of this and they don't get it. And then he wraps the whole thing up with a story about two guys. One builds a house on the rock, one builds a house on the sand. One of them's left standing after the storm. And this story is way bigger than we think it is. So I just wanna talk about a couple of things here. If you go back to verse 24, you notice that Jesus says, anyone who hears these words of mine. So it's really important that we hear this because what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's drawing a line. He's saying, listen to my words. Listen to what I'm actually saying. He, he's saying, my teaching, my instruction, these things that I'm sharing with you, they are a dele delineating point. They are a line in the sand and there is a difference drawn by me and what I teach. This is really important for us to, to hold on to. Jesus himself is saying, listen, my words are different. The reason this is astonishing is because I'm telling you things that nobody else is actually talking about. My words, what I'm about, it will draw a line. They matter. That's the first thing that, that we need to catch and hold on to. Then he says, he also mentions something that's a major game changer. He says, everyone is on a road. Everyone's on a road. Everyone is on a, a, a faith path of some sort. Everyone has a faith construct. Everybody has some direction they're moving because of what they believe, right? This is a brilliant metaphor. I, I love this because what Jesus is basically saying is the things you believe take you somewhere. Like oftentimes what we do is we take our beliefs and we put them in a little box. And then when we're hanging out at a coffee shop and someone happens to ask us what we believe, then we pull the box out. And we're like, well, let me talk to you about this. And that's the way we often think about our beliefs. But on the contrary, what Jesus is acknowledging in this metaphor is that when you and I believe certain things, those beliefs take us someplace because we make decisions about our life, about our choices. We go a direction because of what we believe. So our faith construct actually shapes where we go with our life. And some people might say, well, no, no, wait a second. I'm not really a religious person. I don't, I don't, I'm not into this sort of faith thing. Maybe you're exploring, maybe you're watching online. You're just like, you, you somehow landed on this today. There's other stuff you could watch, but you're here, right? And you say, well, no, I don't really have a faith construct. And Jesus says, no, actually everybody does. That's what he's saying in this. We all build a house. We all build a road. Even if you're irreligious, even if you're not a person of faith, you still have something you believe in. Um, Blaise Pascal, French mathematician, scientist, also Christ follower, 
Blaise Pascal, um, his intellectual friends in Paris at the time that he was living would say something like this to him. They would say, Blaise, um, you know, you have faith and that's fine. That's great for you, but I need proof. And until you give me empirical evidence, I can't believe the way that you believe. And so therefore, it's fine for you, but I'm not going to live my life based on anything I believe in because I can't empirically prove those things to be true. And Pascal actually disagreed with this wholeheartedly, and he came up with something that was called Pascal's wager, um, like a bet. And and he said this, basically, you have two people. You have Mr. X and you have Mr. Y. And Mr. X... um, Mr. X believes that there is a God, believes that that God has revealed himself in scriptures. He believes that there's something at the end of this life and that the choices we make in this life actually matter. That's Mr. X, right? Then you have Mr. Y who says, okay, God may exist, but if there is an afterlife, there's no delineation in that afterlife. And if, if there is a God, he doesn't really care about my choices and the things I do. It's really, and so, so basically, Mr. Y is essentially an agnostic, right? I believe that God's there, but I'm really vague. I don't want to draw any conclusions. And so Mr. Y, he, he's got very vague ideas, and Mr. X has very concrete ideas. And Mr. X is putting his faith in God, even though he cannot empirically prove that God to Mr. Y, But what Pascal points out is this. Mr. Y is also basing his life on faith because he cannot prove or disprove empirically whether or not there is a God or whether or not there isn't an afterlight or whether there is a right or a wrong. And so actually he's saying both of us are living based on faith in something that we cannot empirically prove, which means both of us make decisions in life based on what we believe in, even if you say you don't believe. You still believe something. So both of them are wagering their lives. Both of them are gambling their lives on faith commitments that cannot be empirically investigated. So so Jesus is saying this really simply, like everybody has a faith commitment. Everybody's on a road. Everyone builds a house. And what Jesus is doing in this is he's saying there's no neutrality. There aren't a lot of roads kind of headed off in different directions. That's not it. The road you are taking, Jesus is really clear about this, it's either leading to life or it's leading away from life. There's no neutrality. Like you are either making decisions based on what you believe that are leading to life or you're going away from life. That's what he's pointing out here. You're either going closer to the truth or you're going further away from the truth. According to Jesus, and and, and what he also is saying is that that makes the difference. He's saying, listen, what I'm saying is a line in the sand. It's different than what everybody else is talking about. You have to remember this, that, that of all the faith systems, Jesus is the only one that ever came and said, I'm the founder and I'm God. That's it. Some say, some faith systems say, well, well God could never become a human being. Others say, well, no, God could do it all the time if he wanted to. All others basically say that that Christianity is impossible. Christianity is the only one that says, we believe in this once for all incarnation of God. And just that one area is cause for divergence from all the rest. All the other roads go a different direction. And so it demands some sort of intellectual response on our part that if this is the truth, if this is what Jesus is claiming, at some point you have to draw a conclusion about this. Either Jesus was absolutely insane or he is who he says he is. 
And if he is actually who he says he is, then Jesus is establishing something. He's doing something that is completely different than what anybody else is talking about, which is why these people found Jesus to be astonishing. Because it's different. He wasn't establishing a religion. He's creating an entirely new system to connect with the one who made us. It is a new spirituality that is not being manifested in the teaching of that day or the teaching of our day, quite frankly. So I want to just revisit what Jesus says about our part in this. Verse 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he gives them a parable. Here's two guys, and they built two homes, one on the rock and one on the sand. And by the way, on the outside, they both looked the same. They both looked the same. But underneath, they have two totally different foundations. They're radically different. What is Jesus saying when he says this? Is Jesus saying that it's possible for people to call Jesus Lord, to sit alongside of each other in church, to look very similar on the outside and on the last day as Jesus refers to it, discover that he never knew them? Jesus is driving his point home. See, you know, we like to think of this, uh, this wide road being populated with like frat boys named Blake who carry their beer bongs with them everywhere they go, right? That's kind of what we imagine. You know, there's this wide road and all these people are on it. And that's, sorry if your name's Blake, by the way, it's just, you know... It's kind of a frat boy name. It's like Chad. I don't, sorry, Chad. I don't even know where Chad is, but I know he's in the room somewhere. Um, but you know, you just picture like the wide road. Jesus says the wide road. You know, you just picture like revelers, you know, they're just partying, you know, it's like people before the Super Bowl, that kind of thing, right? But what Jesus really points out is it's anybody who's living by a system or a structure other than his, that's who's on that road. And I want you to notice what Jesus says about those who build on the sand, who are on that road. Look at what he says is true about these people. Number one, if you're taking notes, you might want to write these things down. Number one, these people have good theology. They have orthodox doctrine. These people come to him and they say, Lord, Lord. The word Lord is the Greek word kurios, kurios, and the Greek language was an acknowledgement that Jesus was God. We believe that you're God, Lord, Lord. There's an intellectual ascent that exists inside of these people. So for these Greek-speaking Jews, they understand when he says, Lord, Lord, they know exactly what Jesus is saying. These are people who have good theology. They've gone to lots of Bible studies. They've read all kinds of stuff and they think all the right things about who God is. And then secondly, they're emotionally involved. They say, Lord, Lord, that use of a double word like that, the way he repeats that, um, that's a way in the Hebrew culture, that's the way you would emphasize an idea with emotion. Um, it's why uh, Jesus, when he's at the home of Mary and Martha and Martha starts complaining because she's doing the dishes and Mary's just sitting around doing nothing, when she appeals to Jesus, Jesus says, Martha, Martha, and there's like this emotive thing. It's like, no, there's this emotional connection, Martha, Martha. Or David, when um, his son Absalom was betraying him, and he says, Absalom, Absalom. There's this acknowledgement of emotion. These people say, Lord, Lord. 
They're emotionally connected to this. They're emotionally invested in this, right? Not only that, they're active in service. That's the third thing we see. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and do mighty works? Did we not serve on the usher team and serve in kids ministry and go to the food bank? Like we did all these different things. That's what they're saying to him, right? And Jesus doesn't deny those things. He doesn't say, nah, you didn't. He just says, I never knew you. I never knew you. It's not, I, it's not like I didn't know about you. It's not like Jesus goes, oh, you guys must have been in that corner of the world I didn't see. He says, no, I didn't, we never knew each other. Jesus is using a relational term. He's saying you did all those things, but we were never in relationship with each other. We never had a relationship, right? Let me just be clear about something and follow the logic here. Is there anything wrong with having good theology or orthodox doctrine? Nothing wrong with that, okay? Let's be really clear before you call me a heretic. Is there anything wrong with being emotionally involved? No. Guys, this morning, I'm emotionally connected as we worship, right? That's, an, that's, that's a part of this thing, right? Is there anything wrong with doing ministry? No. Doing, like serving people, doing justice. There's nothing wrong with it. But these are also traits of people who will hear Jesus say, I never knew you. So that should cause some alarm bells to go off. Remember I said Jesus says some difficult things sometimes, right? The presence of these traits does not demonstrate that you are a follower of Jesus. Let me say that again. The presence of good theology and being emotionally involved and serving, those traits do not demonstrate that you are a disciple of Jesus. So what are the indicators? Well, if you look at the passage, you see that there are only really two things that you have received and understand grace. And as a result of that grace, you have made Jesus truly the Lord of your life. Lord. Let me explain this. N notice, um, notice that Jesus says, not everyone. Not everyone, but the one who does the will of my Father. That's actually a really important key to unlocking what's being talked about here. See, these people, what they have, they have intellectually stimulating faith. They have an emotionally gratifying faith. They have a socially redemptive faith. We want those things. Those are all good things. But what Jesus is pointing out is it's possible to have all those things, to want all those things, and actually not want God. You can have all those things and not want a relationship. You can have that. But if you want God in your life, what Jesus is saying is you have to submit your will to him. You have to submit your will. You have to let him be Lord in your life. And that shows the difference between someone who's trying to use God and someone who's actually serving God. That's the difference. See, people want the power and people want the love. People want the meaning. We want all those things, but we also want to maintain control of those things, right? We go to God and we go, man, I'd love a little more power. Would you help me with what I'm doing today, right? We invite God into our mess rather than us helping him with what he's doing, right? So the people in this story, what Jesus is pointing out is they've never surrendered their will. They've never actually said, I want my life to be lived according to how you want it lived. It's about the will of God, so Jesus says, you pursue the power and you pursue the love and you pursue the, the meaning, but it's all in the power of your own will. It's your will. You're doing those things because it's what you want to do. It's what makes you feel right. It's what makes you feel good. It's all about you in that. But to know God, 
To be a disciple of Jesus is to submit your life to his will. That's what it means. So the mark of an authentic Christian is not necessarily that you're more moral. It's not that you have greater character. It's not that you have less addiction. It's not that you have fewer mistakes. It's not that you have a cleaner life. That's not the mark of being an authentic Christian. The mark of an authentic Christian is that you're, you're teachable. You're pliable in the hands of God. You're flexible. That, that you're listening. That you lean in at the beginning of a day and you say, Lord, where do you want me to go? And who do you want me to be? And you, you lay it before him and say, this life, I might have a career and a family and all these different things, but I just put it in front of you and ask, would you let me do all of this stuff you've put me in the way that you want me to do it? That's what it looks like. That's the mark of an authentic Christian is this submission to the will of God in our lives. That's what it looks like. The other does the opposite of that. And Jesus says this, right? Jesus says, I never knew you. And they say, how dare you? How, have you not seen? Do you not know what we believe? Do you not see us worshiping passionately in church? Do you not know that we've served 27 hours a week for the last 25 years? Like, do you not know these things? But it's all about what they do. Not about the grace of Jesus that's compelled them. They're not in relationship. It's not those who say, Lord, Lord. It's those who make him Lord, Lord, Right? And that happens when we get the grace of God. When you and I understand, when, when we realize that we were so broken that somebody had to die for us, but then we find out that somebody loved us so much they did, that should captivate us. When we see that even in our most broken state, that Jesus loves us unconditionally, unequivocally, that he gives himself for us, there should be something about that grace that says, it's not about, it's never going to be about what I do. It's always about what you do. And it pulls us like a tractor beam into relationship with him, right? He pulls us in with his grace. That's what, that's what we experience in this. And these people, they say, look what we've done. How dare you, Jesus? Look what we've done. But those who know, we go, oh, it's never about what we've done, is it? We could never do enough. We could never do enough. And Jesus says, we don't know each other. The way you know me is if you surrender your will to me. And the only way you'll surrender your will to Jesus is if you truly comprehend the grace that he's extended to you. That's when you'll do it. And when you do that, things just loosen up and make sense. Prayer is no longer like firing off a flare in the middle of the night hoping God sees it. Prayer becomes a conversation, right? Now I'm just talking with God. I'm in relationship with God. Doctrines, they're not just things you once believed. Now doctrine becomes like love letters between your creator and you. Truths aren't just things we defend or fight about with other people. Truths begin to shape the decisions we make. They begin to change our life. We start to, we start to make choices because I go, oh, oh, if that's true, then I should do A or B or whatever. That's what happens. See, Jesus said, come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. All those religious teachers of that day and this day, it's the opposite of rest, isn't it? It's all about white knuckling it. It's all about trying harder, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And Jesus says, that doesn't ever lead to life. My burden is easy. My burden is light. I give you life and lightness. You don't have to strive anymore. Experience my love, experience my grace and walk in this new way. Let me lead you 
And if you do, all these crazy things that happen in life, these storms, they will come and go, and you and I will always be okay. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. I want to give you space um, because we live in a, I'm just going to speak from my perspective. I live in a culture that's always telling me that I'm not doing enough. And you live in that same culture. And then we translate that to our faith and we think, is there more I'm supposed to be doing? Is there more? Is, am I supposed to be striving? Am I supposed to be doing this? And I just want to give you space right now to just hear from Jesus that you are enough. You are enough. You don't need to strive. You don't need to jump through hoops. You just need to receive the love and the grace of Jesus and then operate out of a place of being loved and that will lead to life. And so I, I, I don't care if you're here for 25 years you've been sitting in this building or, or you're here and it's been 25 minutes all of us can be in a place where we have not been living under the umbrella of God's grace, but we've been living in the religiosity of scribes and Pharisees, and we need to be redeemed from that. And so if you just need to lean in this morning, maybe for the first time, and just say, Jesus, I want to receive the lightness of what you have. And I want to walk as, as, as your disciple. I want to listen for your voice. I want to be led by you. I just encourage you to say yes to that now. And if, and if maybe you've been around church a long time, but you realize it's been your will and not his will, maybe there's a spot for you in this moment to say, Lord, Lord, I want you to be Lord. I don't want to just believe right things. So Jesus, help us to see. I prayed it earlier and I'm going to pray it again. Open our eyes so that we can see what's real and open our ears so that we can receive truth from you and open our hearts that we might be the kind of people who can lay our lives down, our will down at your feet and let you be the Lord we say you are, trusting that in the end, there's nothing but life and joy and peace and hope. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you guys stand with me? Super Bowls today. I didn't know who was playing till the last service, just so you guys know. I was rooting for all the old guys, just so you guys know. I mean, Ben Roethlisberger, I really wanted, you know, like, and then Tom Brady, like, any old guys out there what, rooting for the old guys? Yeah. So once those guys were all gone, I was like, I don't even know who's playing anymore, but rooting for Cooper Cup, Spokane guy. There we go. Yeah. But I want to send you into this day. I know you're going to have fun today. You're going to do lots of things. Some of you are going to go on great hikes where nobody's out because they're all glued to a TV. <laughs> but I want to send you into this day and I want to send you into this week with a blessing. And so if you're just willing to maybe hold out your hands and I just want to offer this to you. May you be men and women who choose the right path and build on the right foundation. 
Because you take your will and you put it at the feet of Jesus in his name. Amen. Amen. We love you guys so much. Have an amazing, amazing day. Enjoy that sunshine. We'll see you guys next Sunday. See you later.